Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, posting August 21st, 2015, we talk with prize-winning environmental author, photographer, and activist Subankar Banerjee. His essay for the new WPJ Climates Cliff Summer issue is headlined, In the Warming Arctic Seas. We'll also point out other top stories in the new summer issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports news service. Well, as the presidential campaign heats up, foreign policy appears to be taking a backseat to domestic issues like jobs and the economy. A survey by the Associated Press and National Opinion Research Center says 38% of Americans want the U.S. to take a less active role in world affairs. 28% say a more active role. Issues that topped the list of concerns weren't even on the radar four years ago. ISIS, for example, Also, tensions with Russia are far greater this time around. Moscow's annexation of Crimea and its designs on Ukraine is new. Also, an increasing worry, the flexing of China's muscle in the Asia-Pacific region. The next president will inherit all of this, of course, along with the Iran nuclear deal, Syria, North Korea, Afghanistan, Israel, the list goes on. Some candidates on the Republican side have used strong language and hinted at, among other things, the possible use of force against ISIS. It's not unusual for candidates to talk tough on the campaign trail, but then grow more cautious once in office, of course. It's also worth noting, by the way, that large majorities of both Republicans and Democrats, about two-thirds of each, according to a recent Pew survey, support the current air campaign against ISIS, even though just 30 percent say that campaign is going well or fairly well. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. Shell's plans include drilling exploratory wells in Alaska's Chukchi Sea. Shell's Alaska program has gone to great lengths to make sure a worst-case scenario, such as an oil spill, never takes place. But in the unlikely event that one did, Shell's on-site oil spill response assets would be deployed within one hour. Shell Oil produced a predictably self-assured safety video this past spring after the Obama administration gave conditional approval for its drilling in a critical region of the Arctic. The Chukchi Sea and surroundings are already experiencing some worst-case scenarios of climate change. Wildlife driven from traditional feeding grounds and dying of hunger, whole forests uprooting, and native villages forced to relocate because of melting ice that raises sea levels, reduces land mass, and releases frozen methane that itself adds to global warming. Environmental photographer, author, and activist Subankar Banerjee called the administration okay, quote, irresponsible and reckless, unquote. Banerjee puts it in context for the new summer 2015 issue of World Policy Journal in an essay headlined In the Warming Arctic Seas, and I talked about it with him recently for this podcast. Subankar Banerjee, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you, David. Your essay begins with a recollection of your own near-death experience, courtesy of climate change on a river in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, NWR. Tell us about that. 
Well, it was uh, 2001, November, and that was the first year I went up there in the Arctic. Uh, and November is supposed to be uh, winter already. The rivers should be uh, frozen solid, uh, and traveling on it is fairly safe. And I was riding on the back of his sled when my companion, his Inupiaq, lives in Kaktovik, which is an Inupiaq village on the Bufurtsi coast. And he was driving the snowmobile. We went, he went up the bank, but the snowmobile broke through the ice. I fell into the water. Uh, it was really 40 below zero or colder. And, uh, but it, fortunately it was shallow water. Uh, and then he and his cousin Periana Sugar quickly set up the tent. We, uh, and then I kind of warmed up inside the tent. It was a near death experience because I was settling into hypothermia. The reason is that the Arctic, so this was the first year when we were already seeing signs of climate change there, very rapidly coming. And this particular incident, uh, the reason it happened is that there is more precipitation, so more snow is falling on top of the river ice, which is not getting a chance to get frozen solid and thick. So you're getting what is called the thin ice. And that's what caused this incident. And at that time, like the next year, the Smithsonian Institution Arctic Research Consortium published uh, really a rather large book, a collection like an anthology with indigenous voices. And they essentially concluded that the uh, peoples of the Arctic are the first to witness severe, it is their uh, quote, severe uh, and devastating impacts of climatic and other ecological changes, but they also pointed out that most of the world uh, citizens are not yet witnessing uh, these changes. So, you know, those early years, it was very difficult to communicate climate uh, change in the Arctic because most people of the world were not witnessing it. Now, 15 years later, most of the world citizens are witnessing it, so it has become more easier, but these changes have become really very intense in the Arctic. Well, how does warming in the Arctic compare with the global average at this point? Well, the Arctic is warming on an average two times the global average. So it's warming much more rapidly. But another thing that needs to be mentioned is that the winter, the warming is even more pronounced, could be up to like seven times. So... Uh, that, so that's what is going on. So it is, it's warming at a much more rapid place. A lot of people are calling it the Arctic as the canary in the coal mine, meaning whatever happens up there will eventually hit the rest of the earth. Earlier this year, the National Research Council of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences published a rather short booklet called Arctic Matters, the Global Connection to Changes in the Arctic. And they're putting in perspective, among other things, how these changes would affect not only the Arctic, its local people, its uh, ecology, and the entire region, but the whole Earth. So whatever happens in the Arctic will impact the whole Earth. Well, let's talk about that. Arctic melt also contributes to warming worldwide because of long-frozen carbon in the permafrost. Explain that. Yeah, in fact, the permafrost thawing is uh, one of the uh, most uh, disturbing and worrisome uh, thing change that is taking place in the Arctic. The Arctic has huge amounts of carbon stored in permafrost, both terrestrial, which is uh, 
like permafrost essentially means permanently frozen ground. And these methane and carbon dioxide are stored in this permanently frozen ground. And when this permafrost is melting because of warming, the organic matter inside begins to break down and releases methane, which is nearly 100 times uh, more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide on a short time cycle, like 20 years. But methane does not last that longer. And also subsea permafrost, where the methane is uh, stored both in the organic matter as well as something called clathrates, which is like frozen molecules uh, and its crystals. So when all of this permafrost is thawing, it's releasing huge amounts of methane. And as I said, methane is so much more potent, so scientists worry that the Arctic methane could destabilize the climate much faster than what they were predicting even a few years ago. And in a far wider range than the Arctic itself. Yes, in, indeed. That's the point, is that, you know, if you look back at many of the uh, Earth's past great extinction events, there are five so far has happened, and we are now in the midst of the sixth extinction, that all of them, the Arctic played a crucial role, and the Arctic methane or the Arctic carbon played a crucial role that went up. The previous, the various reasons happened, but essentially the, in the end, this uh, Arctic carbon is getting released in the atmosphere and into the ocean is causing the trouble. In the Arctic itself, you report how warming leads to rain that later freezes into deadly ice that causes the death of many reindeer, caribou, and musk oxen. In fact, the disappearance of musk oxen from the NWR coastal plain, despite a major restocking effort. Uh, talk about that. Yeah, I think, you know, you just brought up the most, one of the most important uh, points is that, as I was saying earlier, that not only that the average of the Arctic is warming, but the winter time, it's warming even more rapidly. So what is happening is in the winter time, when the temperature should be like 40, 50 below zero, and there should not be any uh, like question of even rain in those uh, conditions. But now during winter and late fall, you are actually, uh, the Arctic is experiencing rain and then the rain falls. Soon after that, you get freezing temperatures. So then it turns into ice. And so it's creating this hard layer of ice on top of the tundra that hoofed animals like caribou, reindeer, and other animals cannot break through to find food. So they are starving. And one of the examples of what you may call the early examples of what I call local extirpation that has happened, or near local extirpation that has happened in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is with musk oxen. Musk oxen are sort of this iconic species of the Arctic. They are more adapted to the Arctic cold than any other animal, including the polar bears, because their wool, called kivut, is one of the warmest wool on the planet. It's likely the warmest wool. And they can stand upright in a blizzard blowing at 60, 70 miles an hour, temperature dropping to 60, 70 below zero. That's how they are adapted. In fact, they drop their calf. Uh, in April, when the ground is completely covered in snow uh, and it, the, uh, it's extremely cold, it's the only animal that is known to do so. And these, even these little uh, calf uh, the, or the baby animals can survive such extreme conditions. But what is happening is 
in the Arctic Refuge, I had witnessed and photographed and documented an uh, unusual event where the group of 13 adult muskoxen and a baby migrated from the uh, kind of the upland area in the mountain region to the coastal plain. And this idea was that in the coastal plain in winter, they were having difficulty finding food because of deeper snow more precipitation, as I mentioned earlier, and also icing. So they were moving back in the foothills region. But when they give birth, the grizzly bears come out, and the grizzlies are predating on the muskox in large number. So anyway, long story short, the muskoxen had roamed the entire Arctic, all in, entire circumpolar Arctic uh, during the Pleistocene era. They survived the Pleistocene. But uh, the population was wiped out in the 19th century when the commercial whalers came into the Arctic coast of Alaska and guns were introduced. But then there was a restocking effort, as you mentioned, into the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in the 1950s. The animals did well. And now today, the uh, last count was 29 animals inside the Arctic Refuge, and that was 2003, and today it is believed the count is zero. That's why I call this local extirpation, although some of the animals migrated east and west. And there are other muskox population in the Arctic, but both muskox and caribou are suffering from this thing called icing on the tundra and freezing winter rain that is affecting both of those. And those are the only two animals, hoofed animals, that survived from the Pleistocene to the, into the Holocene and now may be suffering and, and is suffering in our time, which we are now calling the Anthropocene. Arctic warming also melts sea ice, which we know is of key importance to the iconic polar bear. What is the latest estimate on how this is affecting their numbers and the uh, plentiful, previously plentiful fish stock in the region? Uh, the Arctic uh, sea ice is uh, perhaps the most important uh, element of the Arctic that what scientists call that the Arctic is the integrator of the Earth's climate both the oceanic and the atmospheric process of the whole Earth is in part and in large part is controlled by the Arctic. And sea ice plays the most significant role because it reflects back the sun's radiation and keeps the Earth cool. But this sea ice is melting very, very rapidly. Uh, in fact, uh, by 2012, 50% of the summer sea ice was gone. And scientists for the past few years have been saying that the summer Arctic sea ice may disappear maybe even this year or next year or within a few years from now, which is quite disturbing. The rate of change is much larger than what the scientists had predicted even a few years ago. Anyway, long story short is that numerous animals depend on the sea ice, including the iconic polar bears, the walruses, various varieties of seals, uh, there are seabirds, but the polar bear population is suffering very much because because of the uh, rapid melting of the sea ice, both its extent as well as its thickness. The extent has, as I said, 50% gone, and the thickness is about 65% gone from the historic average. Anyway, so this is affecting the polar bears, and there are about 19 polar bear populations in the entire Arctic, and the one that uh, I have looked at and worked with uh, 
through my work in the Beaufort Sea region of Alaska, and the population declined by about 40% between 2001, when I first went there, and 2010. And that's a rapid decline in a decade. Uh, and out of the whole global sort of circumpolar populations, out of 19, seven are in decline. About four are steady, uh, one is increasing, and seven, the population trend is unknown. But overall, the polar bears are really struggling. So are the walruses. Out of the six out of the last eight years, tens of thousands of walruses have hauled out in the Chukchi Sea uh, on land because the sea ice had disappeared right where shale wants to drill for oil. Rising seas also mean disappearing land at the shoreline and the human habitat there. What's the latest tally of land swallowed, homes destroyed, whole villages relocated because of that phenomenon and the increasing storm damage uh, that the warming is uh, causing? Yeah, you just brought up one of the most important aspects that is affecting the human communities in the Arctic, not only the animals, which is coastal erosion. And... Uh, combination of the rapid uh, reduced extent as well as the duration of the sea ice, the uh, extreme storms that are now taking place, melting of the permafrost, as well as sea level rise is all contributing to coastal erosion. And uh, the government accountability report in the U.S. published two reports over the last decade that assessed that about 200 uh, uh, native villages in Alaska are prone to coastal erosion and flooding. 31 are facing imminent threats, and about 12 communities are requiring relocation, including Kivalina. They're, they're experiencing such rapid coastal erosion that they have to relocate. They have no other choice. Uh, but writing the article for the World Policy Journal, one thing I noticed is that there was really not much knowledge about what's happening in a circumpolar perspective with regard to coastal erosion. And I'm grateful to uh, David Andelman, uh, the editor-in-chief of the World Policy Journal, because he asked me that, you, let's try to find out what's going on circumpolar. And what I found out was that there is one single report published by a German coastal research institute and they gave a, they acknowledge the fact that the overall assessment is still missing circumpolar perspective, but that it is um, the coastal erosion is happening at a fairly rapid rate, and some of the extreme cases are like 100 feet per year. Uh, and so that's quite disturbing. So, but the problem is that while the coastal erosion is taking place, many communities will have to be relocated. There is no government agency in the U.S. or really anywhere in the circumpolar Arctic to deal with this massive issue. And if you think about climate change-induced forced relocation, the scholars have coined a term called climate refugees, where people will have to move. But in the Arctic, it's not a refugee issue. They, they're not moving from one country to another. They are within their homeland, so they'll have to figure out how to move to a safer place. So that's the issue, really. Despite the Arctic's vulnerability and the damage already suffered, it remains a seductive source of fossil fuel, the burning of which will only make the problem worse. Give us the current estimate of the Arctic oil and gas reserves. 
Yeah, in 2008, the U.S. Uh, Geological Survey did the first area-wide estimate of the fossil fuels resources in the Arctic, uh, and they found that there is about uh, 90 billion barrels of potentially recoverable oil and about some 1,700 uh, trillion cubic feet of natural gas, which roughly translates to about 13% of world's uh, kind of under oil and about 30% of natural gas. Much of it is actually in the Russian Arctic, 50% of it, about 20% in the U.S. Arctic, and then you have Canada, Norway, uh, Greenland. And out of these, uh, most of the natural gas is in the Russian Arctic, and the most of the un unrecovered oil is in the U.S. Arctic. And 84% of that is actually in what I call the warming Arctic seas. So there is a renewed push by the Arctic countries to develop that area for oil and gas, which, as you mentioned, and I mentioned in my article, is both uh, illogical and uh, from a moral point of view is uh, deeply problematic because while Arctic is suffering all these changes affecting the human communities as well as the non-human biotic life, why would we industrial industrializing the Arctic Ocean for more fossil fuels that will only exacerbate the situation, not only in the Arctic, but the whole Earth. But that's what is going on. And right now what is going on circumpolar-wise, Russia is, of course, making a push, but Norway has backed off. Their company, Statoil, actually gave up the leases. Uh, they decided not to drill in the Barents Sea this year and gave up the leases in the Greenland uh, seas on the east, uh, western side. Uh, and in the Canadian Arctic also, Chevron has put its plan to drill in the Beaufort Sea, Canadian Arctic Beaufort, on indefinite hold. Shale Oil is the only company that is right now pushing for oil drilling in the U.S. Arctic, the Chukchi Sea. And the Obama administration so far is being compliant, although the environmental community as well as uh, many peop uh, indigenous Inupiat people who are concerned about it, it has been, have been providing a very serious and sustained resistance. But Shell is still pushing for it right now. Talk about what more Shell needs in terms of uh, government approval and the lawsuit that was filed just recently to stop it. Yeah, so the long story short, Shell bought the leases under the Bush administration in 2008 and paid an unprecedentedly high $2.1 billion for those leases in the Chukchi Sea. Uh, then there was all these lawsuits and environmental uh, 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 kind of the resistance that took place. We had the BP's Gulf oil spill uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. That slowed down the shale's permitting process a little bit. But nevertheless, uh, shale got the permits to do what is called conditional drilling in 2012 from the Obama administration, one uh, exploration well in the Chukchi, one in the Beaufort. But what the administration did was not the full permit, but only shale could drill up to the top layer, not to the oil-bearing zone, reducing the possibility of a blowout. So that was a good thing. But Shell ended up with a disastrous year. One of their drill rigs got grounded. 
the other suffered also damage, and the company and its subcontractor Noble Drilling were fined, as well uh, as well as criminal charges against the company and the sub, uh, subcontractor was filed by the uh, U.S. government, and they had to pay uh, over twelve million dollars in uh, penalties and charges. So. Fast forward to now that the environmental community is again pushing to stop shale drilling. I've been very involved with that. But shale needs one more last final permit, which is the applications to drill. That permit the Obama administration has not given. And just yesterday, 10 environmental organizations, yesterday meaning today is the 15th, it was the 16th or something, earlier this week, Ten environmental organizations uh, sent a letter to the Obama administration urging the administration to f cancel the final permit based on the fact, two facts, that Shell's uh, icebreaker ship, a Fenica that Shell will use, actually suffered uh, again a damage uh, just in uh, early July, July 3rd, as it was going from Dutch Harbor up north to the Chukchi Sea. It ran into a shallow shoal. And uh, there was a uh, more than a three feet long gash on that ship. And Fenica is a crucial component of the drilling operation because it has the containment cap, containment cap that will be used in case there is a blowout. So Shell was then forced to send uh, Fenica. They're actually sending it now down to uh, Oregon, Portland, Oregon, for repair. And so the environmental committee is urging the administration that, look, here is a problem right here. Shell is rushing it, and again they got into a trouble. So you need to cancel it. One thing the administration did do right last month was that Shell was supposed to drill two wells into the Chukchi Sea nine miles apart that the environmental lawyers found out was actually not legal based on the permit. They have to be at least 15 miles apart to protect the walruses. So the administration did uh, then say to Shell that they cannot really drill with those, they cannot drill simultaneously to two wells. So they can only drill one. Uh, so, so there is all this confusion going on. But the main point is that uh, the scientific community has pointed out that if we are to keep the global temperature below 2 degrees centigrade rise from the pre-industrial level, all Arctic resources must remain underground. And they said this unequivocally. So there is a climate change aspect to it that industrialized the Arctic Ocean for oil does not make sense. And then there is a local ecological aspect of damage that could cause uh, that could happen from a blowout, like happened in Gulf of Mexico, except it is far more dangerous because in the Arctic you have no support infrastructure in place. The Coast Guard is 1,000 miles away. The weather conditions, even in the summer, is very harsh. Frequent storms, fog that restricts visibility, blizzards, and in the winter, of course, it's extremely harsh, late fall. So from all of those points of view, drilling in the Arctic really does not make sense right now. Subankar Banerjee, thank you. Thank you, David. Subankar Banerjee is a prize-winning author, photographer, and environmental activist. His books include Arctic Voices, Resistance at the Tipping Point from Seven Stories Press, and Seasons of Life and Land, Arctic National Wildlife Refuge from Mountaineers Books. His article in the New Climates Cliff WPJ Summer Issue is headlined In the Warming Arctic Seas. 
Also featured in the summer 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, you'll find articles on developing solar, wind, and nuclear power, about China's smothering skies, and about answers from six continents to the issue's big question, who has the most to lose from climate change in your country? Plus, tune in to next week's podcast as we talk with reporter Ted Anderson about the environmental threat from Nicaragua's Big Dig. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>